All right, welcome back to Formate Arbitration, and today I've got special guest, Mr. John Poskin. Uh, he's going to be on. He's going to deal with Article 29, and uh, we had that survey a while back on Reddit. Article 29 was the second place vote getter. So John's going to come in here and do Article 29 for me. I'm going to get off of here and let him handle it. And uh, that way he'll have as much time as he wants to to talk about Article 29. And uh, we've talked a little bit uh, this past week. So I'm excited to have him back on uh, what he's going to do to educate y'all on Article 29. So y'all enjoy that. And without further ado, here's Mr. John Poskin. Uh, hello, everybody. Uh, it's good to be back on from, from Aid Arbitration. Uh, once again, I thank Corey for having me on. Uh, I do like coming and talking to everybody, and uh, I do enjoy doing training and, and educating. Uh, so I always enjoy these opportunities to come come back and do so here on from Aid Arbitration. It's been a while since I've been on, uh, but I've been pretty busy. I've had a lot of uh, grievances and arbitrations, and I'm a branch officer as well, so and a full time carrier uh, and a father as well. So a husband. So these things uh, take the time up, but I, I do enjoy coming on when I can. Um, today, as Corey said in the intro, I'll be talking about Article 29, uh, limitations on revocation of driving privileges. And I, at the end of that, I will also talk about an arbitration hearing I did recently on a notice of removal uh, on the back end here as well. So to get started, as I always like to do, is I like to look at the actual contract language and the JCAM language. Um, so there'll be some reading here at the beginning. Uh, actually, this will be a lot of reading. Um, and I've had a little experience with this a couple times with things I've settled locally, so I, I've not done a, uh, gotten back any kind of steppy decision or arbitration award myself on something like this, but I have settled a couple cases uh, at the formal A level in regards to not allowing the carrier to work um, when they had a, when the Postal Service uh, suspended their license. So I will maybe kind of talk about that a little bit going through. Um, so to start, on page 29-1 of the JCAM, states that employees' driving privileges may be revoked or suspended when the on-duty record shows that the employee is an unsafe driver. Um, you know, I think they're just trying to get at it. You have, uh, keep getting witnessed doing things like driving without your seatbelt, your door open, um, going to an intersection and speeding at the same time. And a supervisor sees you doing these kind of things regularly and you start getting disciplined for it. Uh, they, at some point, they, I think the employer would have a right to revoke your driving privileges, um, is what there, is what that says. Um, it says elements of an employee's on-duty record which may be used to determine whether the employee is an unsafe driver but are not limited to traffic law violations, accidents, or failure to meet required physical or operational standards. So yeah, I think if you get tickets while you're driving a, an LLV or a, you know, the Mercedes vans or whatever it is you drive as a, as a mail carrier, uh, those kind of things can definitely contribute to the Postal Service being allowed to possibly suspend your driving privileges. Um, the next paragraph here talks about the report of the Safe Driver Award Committee cannot be used as a basis for revoking or suspending an employee's driving privileges. When a revocation, suspension, or reissuance of an employee's driving privileges is under consideration, only the on-duty record will be considered in making a final determination. So I'm just saying a committee cannot take away your driving privileges. It has to be done based on your record by your managers, your local supervisors. Uh, an employee's driving privileges will be automatically revoked or suspended concurrently with any re revocation or suspension of a state driver's license and restored upon reinstatement. 
I think that's fairly obvious to most people. If your, <laughs> your driver's license gets suspended by the state, uh, then obviously the Postal Service is going to have to suspend your license because it's not legal for you to be driving at all. I think that, that makes sense to everybody. The next, This is porn right here, this next line. Every reasonable effort will be made to reassign such employee to non-driving duties in the employee's craft or in other crafts. And this is usually where disputes come in and grievances come in involving what happens when a carrier's license is suspended. A lot of times management will just try to keep the carrier at home and not give them work. That is generally improper unless they've made a reasonable effort to find them work, which they normally have not done. Uh, I know in my office, one of the common things uh, that's happened in these situations, we have a lot of we have a lot of vehicles that have two seats, two seat LLVs, uh, the new ProMaster vans. But a lot of times we'll send the carriers out with two routes, um, and that that to me that's very reasonable. That would be reasonable. Um, but there are other things that we'll discuss that they could discuss further too about what management could do to find them work, uh, walkout routes, um, casing mail, even working the in the um, Clerk craft can be applied as long as it's not violating their contract. In the event such revocation or suspension of the state's license is with the condition that the employee may operate a vehicle for, for employment purposes, the employee's driving privileges will not be automatically revoked. That is, if you get like some type of what you heard of maybe a hardship license for, for your job only, um, when you've had some legal issues, sometimes people get something like that where they can only drive while they're working and to and from work only. That's what that's speaking about. That means your license will not be automatically revoked in that circumstance if you have that kind of a license. Um, when revocation or suspension of an employee's driving privileges is under consideration based on the on-duty record, such conditional revocation or suspension of the state's driver's license may be considered in making a final decision. Initial issue, an employee shall be issued a certification of vehicle familiarization and safety operation when such employee has a valid state driver's license passes the driving test for the U.S. Postal Service and has satisfactory driving history. Basically, that's saying we get when we, when you, back when you went to training, some of us that was recently, some of that was a long time ago, you have a certificate um, stating that you're able to drive for USPS when you pass the driver's training course. An employee must inform the supervisor immediately of the revocation or suspension of such employee's state driver's license. Yeah, anytime as a union store, if, you're, if you have a carrier tell you your license, their license has been suspended, make sure you tell them to let management know don't be going out there driving around on their suspended license and not tell management because uh, if you get in an accident, God forbid, or uh, somehow get caught, it, it, that's something that could actually rise to a level of termination, even even with a clean record if you're caught doing that because you're putting extreme, uh, it's illegal, putting a lot of risk on the Postal Service. And uh, I actually had a carrier who was, who was kind of doing that and got caught when they did a driver's license check and we had the removal went all the way to arbitration before she got her job back and she still got something on the record. She had come back with a clean record. Um, so it's a very serious thing and they're required to find them work. So there's really no harm in having them tell the supervisor that can't be disciplined just because they got a suspended license. That's, that's not proper. They wouldn't have just cause to do so. Um, but if they hide it from them, that's, that's, that's where the problem comes in. <clears throat> and then the, down under the box here, it says the reinstatement of driving privileges is addressed in the, Nash, the National Memorandum of Understanding below. And this is still on page 29, one of the JCAM. And this is an agreed to memo between the NALC and the USPS. It says reinstatement of driving privileges. It's hereby agreed by the United States Postal Service and the National Association of Letter Carriers, AFL CIO, that the safety and health of employees is of significant concern to the parties. Accordingly, the parties further agree 
that the following is not intended to provide driving privileges to an employee when such privilege would place the safety of the public or the employee at risk. Number two, the mere fact that an employee was involved in a vehicle accident is not sufficient to warrant automatic suspension or revocation of driving privileges or the automatic application of discipline. So that's, that's important, you know, management, just because an employee may have gotten into a vehicle accident, that does not mean it's an automatic suspension of driving privileges. A lot of times they, they will have employees take a, like one of these online driver courses right away. Um, as long as they're allowing to work and do that pretty quickly, you know, that shouldn't be an issue, but they cannot revoke or suspend their license or driving privileges just because they got an accident. It takes more than that. Uh, when an employee's driving privilege is temporarily suspended as a result of a vehicle accident, a full review of the accident will be made as soon as possible, but no later than 14 days, and the employee's driving privileges must be reinstated, suspended for a specified period of time, not to exceed 60 days, or revoked as warranted. If the decision to suspend or revoke the driver's, employee's driving privileges, the employee will be provided in writing the reasons for such action. So if they do suspend the license of, the, of one of our carriers or revoke it, uh, they have to give them a reason to write it. I would say if that reason is not reasonable, or if you know, it was arbitrary or capricious, those type of things are definitely would be grievable. Uh, management has to act rash reasonably when they make actions. Um, number four, if an employer requests that revoked or suspended driving privileges be reinstated, Management will review the request and make a decision as soon as possible, but no later than 45 days from the date of the employee's request. If the decision is to deny the request, the employee will be provided a written decision stating the reason for the decision. Again, that, that written decision could be the basis for a grievance if management denies uh, reinstating the driving privileges in a way that's arbitrary, capricious, and not and they're not acting in a reasonable or rational manner. Uh, the, management, the management review must give careful consideration to and this would be important in any grievance that you want to make sure you, you look at these these four things below here. Uh, the nature, severity, and recency of the incident which led to the revocation of the course suspension. Any driver's training or retraining courses completed for private schools, state-sponsored courses, or postal service training programs, especially when directly relevant to the incident that led to the revocation. Successful participation in the EAP program when relevant to the reasons for revocation. A lot of times with DOP, you're probably talking about they had a drug or alcohol issue or uh, some type of you know, psychological issue that caused this would be why they would recommend EAP program. Uh, the employee state driving record consistent with the criteria for initial certification of driving privileges as stated in the applicable handbook. The employer may waive these criteria if warranted in light of other factors listed above. And says so this memorandum of understanding is not intended to define the conditions or circumstances for which an employee's driving privileges may be suspended or revoked. Um, so that's pretty defined right there too. This memorandum does not determine when, when it should be revoked or not. It's just talking about getting reinstated. Um, so then here back towards the bottom of page 29-2, talks about revocation or suspension of driving privileges. Driving privileges is a relatively new term in the Postal Service. For many years, USPS issued special operator's license, um, known OF-346 and before that SF-46. Yeah, I've never heard of either one of those, and they've been discontinued. Management may suspend or revoke a carrier's driver privileges under certain specified circumstances. And there's some bullet points here. Automatically, concurrently with the suspension or revocation of the employee state driving's license. I think we already mentioned that. 
um, temporarily filing a vehicle accident in which a case, a full review of the accident will be made as soon as possible, but no later than 14 days, and the employee's driving privileges must either be reinstated, suspended for a specified period of time, not to exceed 60 days or revoked when warranted. In other words, if they initially, they have up to 14 days, they can um, suspend the driving privileges temporarily to do an investigation is what this is saying, temporarily. Um, and then they have to make a, a decision uh, to suspend it for a specified period of time, not to exceed 60 days or revoke this warranty. And that that's where the, the grievance challenges would come in if they didn't file that 14-day deadline and then if they, the suspension wasn't proper or warranted. Uh, where management can demonstrate that the on-duty record shows that the employee is an unsafe driver. Uh, we already talked about that before. Uh, there's some additional rules and that they list them here on page 29.3, uh, the EL-804 EL handbook. This is section 421. And it talks about uh, 421.21, the on-duty record. When the on-duty record shows that the employee is an unsafe driver, management may suspend or revoke the employee's Postal service driving privileges, elements of the on-duty record that may be used to suspend or revoke driving privileges include traffic law violations, accidents, failure to meet motor vehicle operational standards, or disregard for personal safety. Uh, those are kind of vague. There's, there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of things there that I think would be up for interpretation. Um, I know it's, I, I, I haven't had a lot of experience with the postal service actually suspending anybody's license unless the state actually suspended it that, I'm, that I've actually participated in. So it's really hard for me to say what what kind of situations have actually applied in this outside of one of uh, the state suspends a carrier's license. But it does give them these are kind of very general statements here. Uh, so if you do have a carrier suspended for one of these reasons, I would definitely look into it as a union store and get some guidance from your, your NBA office or your branch president or somebody familiar with, with fighting something like that. Uh, 421.22 procedures, the following guidelines apply. When management is considering the suspension, revocation, or reissuance of an employee's driving privileges, the final determination must be based solely on the employee's on-duty driving record. That's key right there. That means they can't have any other basis except for the on-duty driving record. So if the on-duty driving record's good and they're trying to use some other reason, uh, that would be improper. Management must automatically be, management must automatically suspend or revoke an employee's driving privileges when a state driver's license is suspended or revoked. And restore the driving privileges when the state driver's license is restored. So that's key. Once you get your driver's license back, they must restore your driving privileges. C, if the suspension or revocation states that the employee may operate a vehicle for employment purposes. Okay, we already talked about that. And when management is considering suspension or revocation of issues of the driver privileges on the on-duty driving record, the conditional suspension or revocation of the state driver's license may be considered in their final determination. So, when a state driver's license is reinstated, the employee must provide a document to that effect. So we are required to bring in something to improve that our, our driver's license when reinstated. And that, I think that makes sense. Um, 421.3, in case of accident, when an employee is involved in a motor vehicle accident, A, there are no provisions for automatic suspension of an employee's driving privileges based on the fact that the employee was involved in a motor vehicle accident. So they can't just, just suspend your license just because you were involved in a motor vehicle accident. They have to find some type of um, something with your driving record that shows that it was you acted improperly. B, the individual circumstances surrounding each accident are assessed at the time of the accident to determine whether a temporary suspension of driving privileges is warranted. 
So that means, well, they got to do what happened during that accident at that time, whether they should suspend it or not. They, there should not be other factors, outside factors involved, something that happened five years ago, something like that, you know, that, that should not be considered. The supervisor must consider whether public safety or the employee's safety will be jeopardized if the employee is allowed to continue driving. Boy, I, I don't really like the fact that the supervisor, that, that's a judgment the supervisor should be making. That, that seems way outside of what they should be allowed to do. But uh, regardless, um, that's, a, that's something they have to consider. But I'm going to say they have to prove that they can actually substantiate that um, you're, you're continuing to drive would, would, would somehow endanger the public. Uh, D, the supervisor must assess factors related to the accident to include the following. Employee's condition, for example, shock, fatigue, impairment caused by use of alcohol-controlled substances and other physical emotional factors. Yeah, if, they, if it appears you're just you're, you're unable to drive because uh, you've been hurt, injured, um, you're just kind of out of it, those kind of things would be a reason for at least temporarily saying you're probably best you didn't drive. That, that's reasonable. Um, serious, two, seriousness of unsafe driving practices, if any, that contribute to the accident. Um, and then for, again, 422, it talks about temporary suspension of driving privileges. Uh, it says, if the supervisor cannot make an immediate determination based upon a review of the factors listed in 421.3, the supervisor may temporarily suspend the employee's driving privileges pending completion of an investigation. Once the investigation is completed, the supervisor can make the decision to suspend, revoke, or reinstate driving privileges. Driving privileges may be withheld pending investigation for no more than 14 calendar days, which we discussed earlier, after which time they must either reinstate, spend it to 60 days, or revoke it. But 423, decision criteria. Manager makes a decision to suspend or revoke driving privileges according to the following criteria. A, investigate and determine the driver's fault or lack of fault, where the driver's actions are the primary cause of the accident. So in other words, if it's somebody else, the other person rammed into the carrier while he's driving, that then the carrier's license should not be suspended. Two, degree of error. In other words, was this a serious error or was it a minor error? If it was a minor error, I, I would say they should not be suspending the driver's license based on that. Uh, it doesn't say that specifically, but that's where I think the intent would be. Record, on-duty driving history, prior corrective actions relates to motion vehicle operation. So, you know, if you, I get, yeah, if you have prior discipline on your record still for, for something like that, that probably is a reasonable thing for them to weigh as a factor. Um, consider the severity of the accident. Uh, I guess a real serious accident, uh, they're more be taken into consideration, uh, you know, caused a harm to a, a van of four people or, um, you know, rammed into a school bus or something like that probably is a little more different than if you, uh, you know, um, accidentally just kind of hit a bump, you know, bump somebody's bumper or something like that. Um, consider factors about the driver, such as training, quality or absence of training in a particular driving activity. Uh, that's a good one because a lot of times we don't know if any driver trained beyond what we got initially when we worked at the Postal Service, unless we get into an accident, they never give us additional training on an LLB or a ProMaster, except for when we initially learn how to drive them, generally speaking. Or unless you're like an, uh, one of the instructors or something like that, I'm sure they get additional training. Two, physical condition. Did the employee meet the physical standards required by state driver's license law at the time of the accident? Uh, I don't know why the supervisor would be qualified to make that determination, but uh, they're, not, they're not a physician, but the contract allows it here. So um, 
how you determine your net though. Um, no, a safe driver award committee determination about the preventability of an accident is not a factor to be considered when suspending or revoking driver privileges. The only way on the bottom of page 29-4, uh, and this gets into a lot of times where the most, most of the time you actually have the grievances about, and that's the every, every reasonable effort to reassign. So, and again, as stated before, it says every reasonable effort will be made to reassign the employee in the non-driving duties in employee's craft or other crafts. This requirement is not contingent upon a letter carrier making a request for non-driving duties, where has management's responsibility to seek find and seek suitable work. So that's pretty key right there. The carrier has no obligation to request a thing. Management's responsibility to find that work. Um, so they can't make comments of, oh, I didn't know he wanted to work. I was just in at home because he, you know, he didn't seem like he wanted to come in. No, that's, that's not sufficient. You gotta, you gotta make an effort here to find work. And uh, this was taken in front of uh, National Arbitrator Snow in April 8th of 1998. And there's some pretty good uh, summary of this in the MRS. The award number is E-18159. And he really lays out the interpretation of what is required of management to make the reasonable effort. Uh, it says, Arbitrator Snow held that Article 29 of the 1994 National Agreement with the NALC requires the Postal Service to make temporary cross-craft assignments in order to provide work for letter carriers whose driver's license had been temporarily suspended or revoked. He rejected the Postal Service argument that the Postal Service was no longer bound by cross-craft provisions of Article 29 in light of the APWU-NALC split. And you're talking about when we split negotiating and, and having the same contract. Um, however, he also agreed with the APWU that Article 29 of the NALC agreement cannot be applied in a manner inconsistent the APWU agreement. Arbitrator Snow's decision did not address cases where driving privileges were permanently are permanently revoked. So you know he's talking about temporarily revoked in this situation. Uh, he held that if it's not possible to accommodate temporary cross craft assignments in a way that does not violate the APWU agreement, a letter carrier who is deprived of the right to temporarily cross craft assignment to a position in the APWU represented crafts must be placed on leave with pay until such time as he may return to work without violating his agreement. So what this is saying there is if you can't find carrier, you know, work in the carrier craft, then you, you can try to find work in the APWU craft unless it violates the contract. But if, you, if that work would violate that contract, then instead they got to leave the carrier home with pay. Um, so that's, that's pretty strong right there. Accordingly, in cases where letter carriers temporarily lose driving privileges, the following applies. Management should first attempt to provide non-driving letter carrier craft duties within the installation on the carrier's regularly scheduled days and hours of work. If sufficient carrier craft work is unavailable on those days and hours, an attempt should be made to place the employee in carrier craft duties on other hours and days anywhere within the installation. If sufficient work is still unavailable, a further attempt should be made to identify work assignments and other crafts as long as the placement of carriers in that work would not be to the detriment of those other craft employees. In other words, you can't harm the other craft by having our carriers working in their craft. If there is such available work in another craft, but the carrier may not perform that work in light of the snow award, the carrier must be paid for the time that the carrier otherwise would have performed that work. Finally, if there's insufficient carrier craft work and also insufficient work in other crafts to which the carrier could be assigned, but for the snow award, and is expected to continue that way for an extended period of time, the employee has the option of not working and not being paid, or 
permanently reassigned to another craft if a vacancy exists. So, you know, you can have a permanent, permanently move to another craft then if they just can't find any work for you. If that, um, there's insufficient work in the other crafts and your own craft. In summary, the award does not establish an automatic carrier entitlement to leave with pay. Rather, each case must be handled individually based upon every reasonable effort to see work. And that's going to be your key when you, when you, when you have a grievance or involving like that. Did management make every reasonable effort? Um, did they do things such as, um, you know, allow the carrier to case mail on, on open routes um, in your office? Um, send them out on a walkout route. Have them ride out with another carrier and do two routes. Um, those kind of things are pretty easy ones, you know, to think of. Um, maybe help with edit books, you know, different things like that. Um, and then if there's work open in the, in the clerk crash, as long as it doesn't violate their agreement, you know, those are the things you need to investigate when it's on the carrier if they have a suspended license that we, we have no work for you, we're going to leave you home. And they're not going to pay it. Um, because that definitely states that there's work available that they could do, but it would violate the clerk's contract. They still have to pay them. They have to carry it home and pay them. These are the things that we need to look into and weigh um, when we have one of these kind of cases come up. Um, like I said, I had one at my office. The carrier was, I called, I actually contacted the postmaster pretty quickly when I found out about it. Um, he read the language in the contract and he gave the carrier work immediately. The carrier was only off a couple of days. He settled making the carrier whole for those, those few days. Um, and that, that was a pretty easy settlement that was made quickly in that particular case, uh, which is better for the employee because they're not going a long time without being paid and trying to get me home. So the quicker we can resolve something like that, generally the better. Um, so I, I, I'm going to read from a, an arbitration award out of Region 3 here. Uh, this is C number C-32696. Uh, our advocate for this was Carl Ofline. I know Carl, good guy, really good advocate. Um, uh, and when he comes to my branch, branch 416, and does cases. He seems to have a lot of good luck with Carl. So, uh, uh, yeah, he's been doing this a long time. I've learned a lot from Carl as well. Um, and this was about uh, not providing a carrier work. It's, and here's the issue statement. And the big was the game was awarded on November of 2016. So November 30th, 2016. So did the Postal Service violate Articles 3, 5, 8, 15, 19, 29, and 41 of the National Agreement? by not allowing the grievance to work eight hours per day at the at the Jefferson Park Station on the Chicago installation. And this was in front of arbitrator Beard, Berg, uh, Berg, I believe is how you pronounce it. I could be mispronouncing that a little bit. Uh, I've never actually been in front of that arbitrator, so I do apologize. Um, so in the background here is the grievance. The, the grievance had been employed since 2012. It appears that sometime in 2013 or 2014, the driver's license was revoked. Uh, the grievance reported this to the service, and the service did attempt to accommodate the grievance by allowing her to work routes that involved walking. In addition, the grievance was temporarily assigned to the clerk craft. Um, both managers testified that the grievance was driven to areas where she could work by, uh, uh, like on a walking route. At times, the grievance was driven to a route, and the truck was left on her route to act as a relay. According to the agreement, these accommodations lasted until about March of 2015, at which time the agreement no longer received a full-time schedule at Jefferson Park. The management testified, manager Hayden testified that while the agreement was provided with clerk craft work, this temporary assignment base ceased when the clerk craft indicated that it would file a grievance over the agreement's assignment to the clerk craft. 
It is uncontested that although the service began to schedule the grievance less than a full-time schedule in March of 2015, she did not file a grievance until um, I believe there's an arbitrability issue here, which I'm not going to get into because this, this was found arbitrable. It's not rule over your end today. But anyways, according to the, the steward's testimony, sufficient work was available for the grievance at all relevant times. Further, on cross-examination, manager Heyman admitted that there were CCAs at Jefferson Park that were working when the grievance was not working full-time. That's big to me. That's uh, CCAs are not guaranteed work, uh, guaranteed hours the way a full-time regular is. So that, that was a good argument. Based on, the, based on these facts, the union contends that the grievance should have been employed on a full-time basis at all times. And um, so kind of just the summary of the union's position in this case was that the union contends that the service acted improperly and unreasonably when it did not provide the grievance with a full-time schedule in March 2015. According to Article 29, every reasonable effort must be made to accommodate those employees who do not have a valid driver's license, including inciting the grievance of different crafts when such work is available. In this case, the service has the burden to prove they made every effort has been made to accommodate the grievance. And that's what we want to do in this kind of case. We should get that burden, shift that, and put that burden in management's court. Don't we, we, It's not, you know, we, us, they're the ones who have to make the reasonable effort. If we can identify work, that's great. But if we can put it in their court and try to make them show that they did, a lot of times you're not going to be able to do that because they generally don't do a good job of trying to do stuff like that. Um, and it says here, no such proof has been provided. According to the union, it has presented sufficient evidence to prove that there was sufficient work available at the Jefferson Park to allow the grievance to work a full-time schedule during the relevant period. The service has not been able to substantially rebut the union's evidence. So uh, the service's position, or summary of the service's position here is, um, the service claims that it was a contractual interpretation case. Now, this has already been interpreted by arbitrator Snow. That's not accurate. As such, the burden of proof falls on the United Union to show that the service violated the national agreement. Well, they're trying to say it's a contract case. That's our burden. That, that, that's no longer. The service contends that based upon the evidence presented, the union has been unable to sustain its burden of proof. The service argues it acted with every reasonable effort in this case. According to the service, it has proven that there is insufficient work for the grievance to work full-time at Jefferson Park after March of 2015. The service contends that it expended every reasonable effort to provide the grievance with full-time work only limited work as was available each day at the station. Thus, the service assigned the grievance to less than a full-time schedule. It was acting reasonably and therefore did not violate the national agreement. The service contends that it used its best efforts to accommodate the grievance, including temporarily assigning her to the clerk craft, allowing her to walk routes whenever possible, driving her, driving her two routes, and allowing her to use a truck as a relay. Further, the service contends that when additional work was available, it restored the grievance to a full-time schedule. The service claims that the union has not met its burden of proof to show that the national agreement was violated when the agreement was assigned to less than a full-time schedule at the Jefferson Park during the period of March 2015 to July 2016. For all the above reasons, the service asks that this be denied. The agreement be denied in its entirety. So, and then we, we'll look at the arbitrator's findings. It says, uh, he, kind of, he reiterates that it appears somewhere during 2013 and 2014, the agreement's license was revoked. Grievant reported this to the service, so she did what she was supposed to do, and the service did attempt to accommodate the grievant by allowing her to work routes that involved walking. She was also temporarily assigned to the clerk craft. Those accommodations lasted until approximately March 2015, at which time the grievant received, no longer received a full-time schedule. 
It is uncontested that although the service began to schedule a grievance less than full time in March 2015, she did not file the instant grievance until July of 2015. Okay. And I'll go into page 14 here in the decision. It says, as to the merits of the issue of the instant case, involves whether the service violated the national agreement when it did not assign the grievance to a full-time schedule between March 2015 and July 2016, when the agreement failed to have a valid Illinois driver's license. I note that the relevant provisions of the national agreement article 29, which provides the following, every reasonable effort will be made to reassign such employee to non-driving duties in the employee's craft or in other crafts. The question in this case is whether the service made every effort to provide the agreement with full-time work. I note that manager Heyman and McGrath testified that it made every effort to provide agreement with full-time work in the form of her driving her out to walk routes, providing her with a truck to act as a relay and temporarily assign her to the clerk craft. However, this cross craft assignment ceased when the clerk craft threatened to file a grievance over the grievance assignment. Further, when the work increased at Jefferson Park in 2016, grievance was returned to full-time schedule. The unions presented evidence to show that it believes that there was sufficient work for the grievance to work full-time during the relevant period. Statements by union representative Dexter indicated that there was sufficient work available to the grievance to have allowed her to work a full-time schedule during the relevant period. I note that the JCAM does discuss the issue of every effort. That's the JCAM language we read earlier. And then he applies the arbitrator snow reasoning in here as well. And says in the instant case, I have reviewed the record and find that while the service has shown that it made every reasonable effort, every reasonable attempt to provide agreement with clerk carrier craft work, it appears that there was a clerk craft work available, but not assigned for the grieving. Heyman testified that while she did temporarily assign the grievance to the clerk craft, that assignment ceased when the clerk craft threatened to file the grievance. Thus, it does appear there was some level of clerk work available to the grievant, but because of the threatened grievance, this stopped. Pursuant to the JCAM, if there is such available work in another craft, but the carrier may not perform that work in light of the snow award, the carrier must be paid for the time the carrier would otherwise have performed that work. Therefore, I find that to the extent the clerk craft work was available for the grievant, but not provided because of the threatened grievance during the relevant time period, grievance should have been placed on leave with pay. Therefore, to the extent that there was clerk craft work available for the grievant during the relevant time, for which the grievant did not receive said work because of the threatened grievance from the clerk craft, based on the snow award, the grievance should have been placed on leave with pay during this time period. Therefore, his award is the, and the arbitrator awarded the following. Well, the grievance is arbitrable. Let's get past that. While the service did show it's trying to prevent clarity, it appears there was work. However, because the clerk craft union was going to file a grievance, the service stopped providing said work to the grievant. Therefore, to the extent there was clerk craft work and for which the grievant did not receive said work and a threatened grievance, based on the snow award, the grievance should have been placed on leave without pay during this period. This matter is remanded to the parties to determine the amount of clerk craft work that was available, but denied the grievance on the threatened grievance during the period of June 27, 2015, until the time the grievance was returned to full-time work. Once that amount is determined, the grievance shall be credited with that time. So, in this case, basically, when they took away the clerk craft work, the arbitrator found that whatever that work was and whatever period of time that that work was available, once the parties determined that, 
any leave or allow or anything will be restored and the agreement will be made whole uh, for that time. And, and that's probably because from the record, I would, would guess he was unable to determine exactly what that figure was, which is why it was sent back to the parties. Uh, that's normally what would happen in a case like that. Um, that's a very good application of how the Snow Award applies in these kind of cases. Remember, the Snow Award is a national award, so it's binding on the parties on how to, this has been interpreted to, to be done uh, when we're talking about uh, finding work for carriers and their driver license suspended. That national award is going to be big and controlling document you'll find in the MRS, um, and copies of it can be printed out as well. Uh, I'm going to briefly touch on one. Uh, this is actually uh, out of Tennessee. Corey, Corey was our advocate for it out of Chattanooga, Tennessee, in uh, May. Date was the hearing date was May of 2016. Uh, the day of the award was June 21st, 2016. Maybe on the back end, if he wants to go into more detail, uh, he can do me to do so. Uh, but that, there's a, like a synopsis here. I'm going to read about this one. This had to do with a carrier who had lost their driving privileges due to a medical issue. Um, they actually suffered seizures or a seizure, maybe just one seizure, but, uh, but the state suspended their license due to this, this seizure. Um, so the grievance suffered a seizure due to a high fever. It's a little bit of the background. And then it goes into kind of what, what happened. He returned to work and gave his doctor's excuse to a supervisor who arranged for the grievance to work non-driving duties at the downtown Chattanooga station. These duties included the delivery of mail on walking routes where the grievance was taken to the route. The grievance worked this portion from May 26th through June 3rd of 2015. He was then told to return to the Eastgate station where he was informed that he was scheduled to have a meeting regarding light duty. The grievance did not attend this meeting because he had not requested light duty. And that's, I'll pause here real quick. Yeah, obviously in a situation like this, just because he had a seizure or he may have a medical issue, that's, doesn't mean, unless you actually requested light duty, they should never be having a meeting about light duty. A light duty in Article 13 is very clearly requested by the employee. However, the burden here is different. Management must make every reasonable effort to find, find work. So you can already tell management was already acting improperly from the get-go there once, once they stopped giving work. Uh, management did not have work for the grievance after the date, and the grievance had to use his accumulated leave. The grievance later acquired a letter from the Georgia DOT revoking his license. This letter was presented to management on August 20th, 2015. Again, the carrier did what they were supposed to do, let management know their driver's license was suspended. Management placed the grievance on non-driving duties under Article 29 the next day. The union filed this grievance alleging that management violated Article 19, by the way, EL804 Safe Driving Program and Article 29 when it failed to place the grievance on non-driving non duties after his initial return to work. The arbitrator opined the failure to meet physical and operational standards classifies the grievance as an unsafe driver under Article 29, even if the affected state has not yet acted to suspend the grievance driver's license. Once an employee's driver's privileges have been suspended, Article 29 obligates management to provide non-driving work. In this case, management did not suspend the grievance driving privileges or provide the grievance with non-driving work. Therefore, the grievance is to be sustained. The order is leave is used leave to be converted to administrative leave. So basically, once they, they made the decision to have light duty, they, they just stopped giving this, this, this person work uh, until he brought in something to have his license suspended. Then they suddenly gave him work. It was pretty clear management was not giving him work because he had a seizure and, um, you know, they were just probably, it was inappropriate. 
Um, like I said, Corey, this was something Corey did in front of arbitrator uh, Bayhackle, arbitrator Bayhackle. Um, and so that's that's really what I got on, on Article 29. Um, uh, you know, these, Corey said this was something that was uh, pretty high on the poll. Um, but yeah, when your carriers have an issue out there, or members have an issue out there with their license, management is required to find, make every reasonable effort to find them work. Uh, don't let them buffalo you in anything else. And if they're not doing that, we need to enforce the contract uh, in those situations. Um, then uh, I'm going to spend a few minutes here. Um, and Corey, you know, he had a, a case he talked about last week, uh, a notice of removal case he was an advocate for. Um, and I just like to talk about this one a little bit. Else, has some arbitrability issues, uh, just so you can see um, kind of what we go through on these kind of cases. Um, you know, maybe a little different perspective and just kind of how I handled this case. Because uh, we these are some of the most important things we always have, of course, is when we're fighting for one of our brothers or sisters' jobs. Um, you know, their jobs on the line. I always take this very, very seriously. Um, so this was in front of arbitrator Healy. The hearing was August 3rd in 2023. Um, and uh, what it was is this was in a, a, a he was a CCA. Uh, it was an attendance case for failure to maintain a regular schedule. Uh, Green had six, was there six or seven unscheduled absences. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, but it wasn't a ton. Um, but there were some arbitrability issues here that were in the file. It was pretty clear management was going to raise these um, based on their arguments in the file at formal A and informal. Um, and uh, one of them was that the issue statement, um, there was, it was a kind of a weird situation where there was two notice of removals in the file. One was dated in January. The other was dated in February. The one in January was never actually issued to the employee. It was just sent to labor for review. Uh, but the one in February was the one that was actually issued, but the issue statement in the file did say we were filing agreements on the one based in January. So management was trying to argue since we we had filed agreements on the wrong notice of removal, that this was not arbitrable because we didn't actually agree to the proper notice of removal. Um, the other arbitrability issue they raised was timeliness because this was mailed to the grievance address record. Uh, the grievance did not have a, a, a grievance filed within 14 days of when it was scanned, delivered at the address in February. Uh, how it sounds like it was his parents' address, but it was his address record with the Postal Service. Um, regardless, he did get it uh, a few weeks after it came in. He actually wound up moving back in with that address. Um, and the steward got an extension. Um, so that's part of what was going on here. And then they're saying because it's been so long after the notice of removal had been issued by the time the grievance had been filed, if the carrier was no longer an employee and therefore the NALC. Uh, did not have the right to file a grievance on his behalf because he was no longer a part of the bargaining unit. So, um, and I know Corey's talked about arbitrability issues before, but um, we have these kind of things, you know, uh, it's like, it's like we're doing two separate hearings in the same hearing or something. You know, this was actually like four almost, but um, where we have to combat the arbitrability issue and then the merits of the actual case. Um, they didn't try to bifurcate this to make it two separate hearings on that. This, this is something more for the advocates would know about, but, you know, it was agreed at the hearing that we'd hear the arbitrability issues and, and the merits of the case and that he would make a decision on all, on all these things. Um, and so what, what happened here, um, as far as the other thing with this case was it was actually resolved in part at step B. There was a secondary issue 
of management failing to provide information to the union. And the uh, DRT did find that management had improperly um, was, would violate Article 1731. And based on some of the uh, contract history here in Chicago, uh, there was an automatic $2,500 remedy to the union for the non-compliance for previous orders, decisions, arbitration awards. There's, there's a ton of them. I might do an episode kind of about how they got to this $2,500 award, so I'm not going to read over into that. But my, when I say Mike, I mean the National Business Agent for Region 3, Mike Care, by the way. Um, so um, one of my arguments to all three of those arbitrability issues was this case was already resolved in part. A management step B representative signed the step B decision that resolved the case in part. How are they going to come into arbitration and now say that this is not arbitrable and this grievance is not properly in front of the arbitrator and can't be heard? Lacks time and lacks sense. However, I definitely didn't hang my hat on that alone. We should never do that. Um, so as far as the issue statement issue went, it was very clear from the file, if anybody who read the file went into it, that the parties were clearly arguing about the notion of removal that was actually issued to the grievance. That's what was being grieved. Our remedy request, even in the Step E decision, mentioned the, the, the February notice of removal, that it be rescinded and expunged, that the grievance be made whole. And all the time, you know, all even in the hearing, the testimony surrounded that, that notice of removal. Uh, so it was very clear what was being grieved here. So that's that's really where I went with that. And, we, and the arbitrator was asked to kind of decide between the issue statements, too, as well, because management wanted to keep that issue statement. I tried to change it at the hearing to the proper uh, February date. Um, uh, the second one, uh, as far as the, uh, the extension went, uh, what managed, there was an extension in the file. It was definitely testified to by our, the local union steward that uh, having the manager of the green new extension, the language in the extension said that it made the grievance, deemed the grievance timely um, as of March 16th. So, um, and they're, they're, the manager who signed this did not come in and testify and dispute anything that the local steward said. Um, so management did also try to bring up there's some arbitration awards uh, that we've had to come up in our region before from arbitrator Simon and I believe Barry that if a grievance was already dead, you cannot resurrect it with an extension. And what they were trying to say here is because it was beyond the 14 days of when the grievance received the notice of removal and when the extension was signed, the extension was not signed until March March 16th. Um, we're talking February 28th, I believe, is when the grievance said he got it, and the delivery record said February 11th is when it was delivered. So we were not within 14 days of either one of those dates um, that the grievance could not be resurrected through an extension. However, I brought in some, some more recent arbitration awards out of arbitrator Obi and Nixon, who definitely disputed that version of events and stated that yes you can be time it is timely because uh the clear language of article 15 states that the parties can agree to an extension nowhere does it say they they can only agree to an extension within the 14 days or seven day timelines or whatever stuff it is uh it doesn't say that anywhere so um that's where we went with that um and i would like to read the actual some of, some of what uh, obi said if i could recall it was um, so, yeah, right here. You mean, argues that this language is clear and unambiguous and that given Williams did not testify to arbitration hearing the claim otherwise, the language should be given its natural meaning, which is that the service is willing to treat the grievance as timely, filed, and arbitrable. The union also points out that the language in the, and this is on page 11 of the award, 
and the extension document has been interpreted to apply the extension requests that are filed either before or after the date when the grievance becomes untimely. In that sense, as the union argues, the parties can resurrect a dead grievance by mutual agreement. And he cites both an arbitrator Nixon and arbitrator OB awards. So those are both in here. Um, Second, the union points to the fact that the DRT team resolved the grievance in part, even after considering the argument by the former staff favorite designee Miller that the grievance was not arbitrable. The union contends that would make no sense for the service representative. Step being able to agree to a partial settlement of a grievance that should have been, not been heard. The union notes that these two arguments serve as response to the substantive and perceived arguability arguments raised by the service. So that was actually the union's position. Um, So he um, he mentions both the Simon and, and, and OB awards in his discussion, though. Um, so the specific language used by Supervisor Williams is clear page that, and it was also before arbitrator OB's, OB distinguishes those two situations from arbitrator Simon award, which the service cites in support of his argument. In the dispute before arbitrator Simon, the union tried to circumvent the art and arbitrability challenge by relying on an agreement entered by the Chicago district manager and the president of local 11 in which an effort to reduce a backlog of grievances the parties agreed to deem timely. Any grievances which at the time of the agreement were at the informal and formal AE levels. As arbitrator Simon noted, there was no evidence in that case that a blanket agreement at the installation level had the intent of resurrecting grievances that were already dead. In the instant case, on the other hand, the language was in reference to a specific grievance as the handwritten vote by Supervisor Williams shows with the knowledge that as far as she knew, the grievance had been separated from her employment. In addition to the extension signed by the party, the arbitrator also finds it relevant that the DRT partially resolved the grievance at step B. As the union submits, it would seem inconsistent for the service to settle part of a grievance that the service believes is not substantially, substantively arbitrable. This is particularly the case where the issue resolved by the DRT was the issue related to the release, the request for release of information and where the requests were made after, according to the service, the agreement had already been taken off the Postal Service's roles. If in fact the service believed the agreement had been removed from the roles on or about March 14th of 2023, the request for release of information should have been moved given that there would have been, not have been a grievance to pursue. The fact that the DR team resolved this issue indicates that at the step B level, the services clearly did not keep these grievances untimely or steps substantively not arbitrable. So basically the arbitrator found the grievance uh, procedurally and substantively arbitrable. Um, and basically the, um, the carrier no longer being an employee, besides the, the DRT argument, I also brought the fact that they actually had no proof in the file that this, that they actually removed it from the roles, removed it from the service, or anything like that in the case file. Uh, they did try to introduce a document in hearing, a Form 50, that could have showed that it looks like it was a retroactive document, though, so I would have some, some arguments about that, but it would have showed that he was no longer an employee two days prior to the date the grievance was filed. Um, but they were ejected and it wasn't allowed in. So, fortunately, that, had that document got in, maybe it changed his arbitrator's decision, but I think based on the reading here, where he, he definitely found it very persuasive that the DR team resolved this, the DRT team resolved this grievance in part. Um, as far as the merits of the case, uh, management actually had two witnesses listed, but the concurring and formal A representative was apparently unable to come testify because they were on administrative leave or something. Uh, so, it was the issue of supervisor ended up being their only witness. 
And uh, you can tell that um, it looked like they didn't prep very well. Um, one of the questions that the services advocate asked his own witness, it was pretty clear that he was surprised by his answer when he asked him if the carrier had given him any personal reasons for why he was missing work. And when the supervisor said yes, he did, uh, you could tell he was surprised. Like, that was not the answer he was expecting. So it didn't appear he did a very good job preparing his witnesses. Um, it also helped us uh, if you were aware of these personal issues and why, you know, it's kind of like a mitigating factor kind of thing. Well, why didn't you consider them before issuing a removal? Um, but also I was able to, on cross-examination, um, show quite a few issues here with the notice of removal. Uh, first of the first one of the first things I noticed when I was reading the files is this carries a CCA, but on a lot of discipline out in our region, I don't know if this is common all over the country or not, but they'll put a, um, a narrative of the investigative interview of what happened in that interview on the actual um, discipline notice management. Well, doesn't mean it's always accurate, but they usually will put it in. So, and I'm looking at it, and he, he, he starts by, it looks like at the beginning of, the, of this interview, he was telling the agreement what his kind of his attendance record was as far as how many hours of leave he had still. And he stated that he had eight hours of sick leave and negative, negative 16 hours annually, or it might even be a little more than that, but uh, CCAs don't have sick leave and don't have, can't go into a negative annually now. So I already knew that there was something wrong with that. Um, so on cross, when I asked him, you know, is, it, is what in here, is this accurate, uh, what you typed in here, your accurate version of the investigative interview and what happened in there? And he said, of course, he said yes. Then I took him, I said, so did you tell, inform the grieving you had eight hours sick leave? Yeah, yes, I did. I said, isn't it true the grievance of CCA? Yes, he was. I said, do CCAs earn sick leave? And he got quiet there for a second. And he obviously had to say no. Uh, then I did the same kind of question with the annual leave. You know, can a CCA have a negative annual leave now? No. Uh, so then I asked him, is it, 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 this is the different employees' records, and it had to be a regular, a full-time regular carrier. Isn't that correct? And he had to say yes. Um, you know, it was a loaded question in there about why did you fail and fail and maintain a regular schedule? Kind of, you know, insinuated before he even answered the question that he failed to maintain a regular schedule, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, of course, he tried denying that, but pretty obvious from the question, and I believe the arbitrator even kind of makes a note of it in his award. Now, it wasn't his deciding factor, but I do believe he, he arbitrator, he was, um, made a note of it in, his, in the award. Uh, but then I took him those 3971s in the file, and what the uh, supervisor had done was, uh, if you called off, say, yesterday, or, you know, let's use August 25th for an example, he would uh, disapprove the 3971 the same date, even though the carrier's never even seen it, no documentation provided, uh, and then wrote on there the carrier refused to sign. So when I took him to that, and I started questioning on it, I said, so you did, isn't it true you denied this the same day that was, you know, printed, generated, and you signed it? Yes, I did. And it says no documentation was provided. That's correct. I said, how was he going to be able to provide documentation the same day he called off sick? Well, he wouldn't. Exactly. So after a couple, after I started going through some of the 71s, he tried changing it. Like, well, I, I, I actually did that after the fact. I said, so, so then you falsified the document? You, 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 did, you, you did something on a different date than what you signed? Oh, no, no, I didn't do that. It was pretty clear the supervisor was lying. Um, you know, so um, a couple of them noted deems as honorable. He tries to, he did, 
Uh, one of them didn't have Beams Desirable. I, I even mentioned, I said, isn't it true a carrier is not even required to bring in documentation unless they're on Beams Desirable? And I'm setting aside the fact that, you know, be, we can go into the whole whether Beams Desirable is proper or not. But, you know, I'm, I was trying to make a different kind of point here. And uh, he said, I don't, I, I don't know what Beams Desirable is. I said, really? So I took him back two pages to one of them where he put in the memo section, the remarks section, Beams Desirable. I said, so do you have a habit of generating a form and signing it when you don't know what's on it? Oh, uh, then he changed his tune. You know, the same old as I. So it was pretty clear his credibility was definitely getting shakier and shakier the more I had across, and the town management was was scrambling over there. Um, and uh, but basically, my argument, you know, arguments revolved around in general just a synopsis here of management's failure to provide information to the informal and formal A representatives, harming their ability to fairly represent this grievance. You know, the first base, you know, the informal aid was basically a sham. There was really nothing. He was given none. He, he, he requested the attendance records and the discipline records as an employee, and he got none. He got nothing. Zero. So obviously, he's handicapped trying to fairly represent this grievance at the informal aid hearing with the supervisor because they didn't give him anything. So besides the grievance statement, um, and he got some, some, some other things to use to try to show that he didn't live at that address anymore, you know, as far as the grievance being untimely. He really didn't have much, you know, his own statement to work with. Well, that's not fair. That's, that's clearly violates the grievance due process rights. And I made a similar kind of argument to formal aid meeting. Um, basically, he got management, uh, they, they agreed to an extension after the formal, or within the seven days of the formal aid meeting, he was appealing to step B. Management, you know, a few days after, the next day or two after the formal aid meeting, that's when they sent them the entire file that they were going to present to the step B team. Well, this is all information that was requested and should have been presented at the formal aid meeting. Uh, to justify their position. So he didn't get a fair hearing or shake at that that level either. You know, um, one of the other things, you know, cross examine with the supervisor, did you ever, you know, have the charging of about five different rules out of L? This is one thing Corey likes to do a lot. I never asked him about any of those rules. How is that fair? Um, you know, how's the grade supposed to defend himself when you're not even making him aware of what rules you're charging him? Um, there was no previous discipline cited in the notice of removal itself. Uh, there was the previous discipline was in the file, and it looks like it's still on his record. Uh, actually, there was no grievance summons in there for me to say otherwise. But, um, but it wasn't actually cited in the notice of removal. And that charge letter—that's that, to me—that's the equivalent of an indictment. It should have you know, it should be listing what they're doing just to try to discipline him. And how was the informal A representative or the formal A representative going to fairly defend him? From, from them trying to, you know, because they definitely are making the argument that they, this was punitive um, because there was no previous discipline cited. And also, like, management tries to, to send it up just with the step B appeal. Well, here's all this previous discipline he has. Well, that wasn't in the charge letter. And you never gave them this information beforehand. You know, so this is, these are things I'm telling the arbitrator in my closing. Um, I spent about 50 minutes with the arbitrator in my closing. A lot of it's addressed also the arbitrability issues, but just to go through all these different things, you know, this is carriers of CCA. They didn't provide any schedules to show when the, when he was that he was actually scheduled to work any of these days in charge of being absent. You take that in consideration with the with the issues with the 3971s, you know, they, they didn't prove the agreement was after his charge. Um, you know, and I think there's maybe other things, you know, that were brought up. And But ultimately, you know, um, Keeley doesn't didn't really go into all the issues. A lot of times, arbitrators do this; they really go into the couple or, or, or deciding ones. 
And so on page 19, uh, he says, this is on the merits. He says, in short, the arbitrator agrees with the union's contention that the service failed to establish by clear and convincing evidence that the grievance was scheduled to work on the days for which he was cited in the notice of removal. Accordingly, the arbitrator must conclude that the service failed to prove that the grievance had engaged in the charge misconduct, and thus the arbitrator includes, concludes also that the disciplinary action cannot be sustained. Accordingly, the arbitrator orders the February 9, 2023 notice of removal to be rescinded and expunged from the grievance personnel records because the service failed to establish that the grievance was guilty of the charge misconduct. The arbitrator finds that the grievance should be reinstated with full back pay and benefits in accordance with the terms of the national agreement as they relate to such orders. Just to touch on Remy a little bit, um, sometimes we, we had arbitrators and he, you know, do sometimes we reduce discipline and don't always um, get back pay. Um, so I did take some time to address that with this arbitrator and close that. If he were to, for some reason, mitigate this, which I don't, I'm glad you're sending this function, that's what it should have been. But that, you know, um, if you were reduced to a 14 day suspension, it should be still be with back pay because that's what our contract does as paper suspensions. Um, sometimes we want to make sure we're always talking to them about remedy and explaining remedies in our contentions and in our, and when we talk to arbitrators or, um, even when you're setting the case up. Um, because sometimes we, we do a really good job, we put together a really strong grievance and we don't explain our remedy very well and we end up not getting everything or what we should be getting. Um, uh, but, you know, I presented to, to, to Arbitrary Healy that, you know, 16.6 and 16.7 are the only times that carriers get unpaid suspensions according to our contract, not 16.4, 16.5, you know, which is deals with 14-day suspensions or discharge or seven-day suspensions. Um, but overall, uh, obviously, the grievance was thrilled. Uh, I, I felt great. Uh, always feels great when we win these cases and we get somebody's job back. Uh, and, and as Corey states, when I lose these cases, it hurts, it hurts like hell. Uh, especially if somebody loses their job. Um, that being said, all these different um, uh, the arbitrations I mentioned, the JCAM language, the Arbitrator Snow Award, um, the Healy Award, which uh, I don't know if I gave the cigar number, but it was D 36258. Um, uh, Jeremy is going to put them all on from the arbitration uh, for anybody to review as they see fit. Um, and once again, anyone has any questions or anything about today's episode or anything I can assist him with, please reach out to Corey. I'm sure Corey, uh, I appreciate if he'd pass it on to me and I'm sure he'd be willing to do so because I know he gets the bar with a ton of stuff that he tries to help people with. Um, and with that, I'll turn it back over to Mr. Corey Walton. All right, there you have it, Mr. John Poskin. A lot of time goes into that, man, uh, getting those things ready. And I really appreciate him coming on and doing that. Uh, that's a lot of homework to get on here and, and educate. And so I appreciate that man more than he knows. Uh, he's eager to, to train and teach. Uh, he's an avid advocate for the city letter carrier from Chicago. So, Again, thank you so much to him uh, for all that he does for City Letter Carriers. That's a tough little job right there. Uh, advocate, formal A, uh, informal, uh, he does it all. And then comes on here, spends uh, part of his Sunday doing this, has been uh, educating himself all week on this uh, to do this episode. So uh, I appreciate John more than he knows. That's going to be it for this week, man. Uh, y'all have a fantastic rest of the week. Next week I'll be back, and hopefully JB will be on 
sometime soon. <laughs> but he's got a lot of baseball going on, so it's kind of tough getting him on right now. But uh, y'all have a, a safe week. Be safe out there. A lot of stupidity going on by management. Uh, we're going to clip their wings, though, okay? And we'll get back into it hard and heavy next week. Gave you a little reprieve from the cuss words this week with John. He's a good guy. <laughs> so I'll talk to y'all next week. Y'all take care of yourselves, all right?